All right, well, our text this morning is from the book of Colossians, and it'll be chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. These are the words of God. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Lord, we plead before you this morning to give us wisdom according to your word. Hear our prayer and instruct us in the ways we should go. We know that all your commandments are right and good, and we know we struggle to obey. And so as we study your word now, teach us your ways, grant us understanding, give us hearts of wisdom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it is a pleasure to be back with you. I get, to, I get to be with you at least once a year, which is always a joy. So great to see you all again. That opening from the book of Colossians is part of a format that Paul uses in a lot of his letters. So there was a format in the ancient world for writing letters. Paul follows that. There's a greeting, some other things. There's actually a a picture going around that kind of gives just a quick, funny outline of how Paul does his letters. And it says most of his letters follow this format. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And Timothy says hi. And so that's, and I know that sounds funny, but it's kind of true. You read his letters, it follows that same format. But the one thing I want to add to that is in, in that second part where he says, I thank God for you, he also, most of the time, tells the, tells the believers in whatever city he's writing to how he's praying for them and what he's praying for them. And this opening to the letter of Colossians is no different. And so I want to take this little prayer. It's actually just part of a prayer. Paul actually... There's five verses before that where he actually um, starts that prayer. But I want to take that as just a picture of our Christian life and some of the patterns that God has given us to think about how we grow and mature in Christ. But first, I I don't want us to miss the fact that that is actually a prayer. It, It shows how Paul prayed for these believers in Colossae, and most of whom he didn't know personally. Um, most of them were relatively new to the church. Um, but in this one, along with all of Paul's other recorded prayers, we can learn how to pray for our families, for our friends, for ourselves, for other believers. And actually hearing Paul's prayers over and over, it really is a good model for us. And so actually, as I was preparing for this, I went and I read the opening to a bunch of his other letters. And it really is just amazing. Here's just a few others, because I just, I had to, I had to pull a couple together. So Ephesians chapter 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Wonderful. He actually throws another one in the middle of Ephesians, too. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Beginning of Philippians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Finally, 2 Thessalonians. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wish Paul was praying for me, right? I mean, just, just amazing words that he's praying for all of these brothers and sisters in these churches um, around the Mediterranean. And so, again, wonderful example for us how to pray for spouses, children, brothers and sisters in Christ. How often, when we, when we do our Bible reading, sometimes we just gloss over Paul's greetings, right? And try to get to the good stuff, right? The meat of the letter. But, you know, right after grace and peace at the beginning of his letters, there's so much richness there. So I think it's important to grab stuff and learn stuff from these prayers, and that's where I want to spend a little time this morning just kind of unpacking just the one in Colossians. won't go through all of them this morning. That's for another time. But I do think, at least in Colossians, and there's different aspects in all different prayers, but in Colossians, I really think we can see a pattern for growing and maturing as Christians and how to think about how God works in our lives because i mean really how much do you think about what spiritual growth looks like if it's often that's great trying to you know be grow in grow more and more into the likeness of christ your sanctification if not much i think these verses are some really good pattern for thinking about how god works in us and what the result should look like because simply stated we are to study and learn and understand more and more how god wants us to live and then we're to live that way And that's what Paul is praying for these Colossian believers. And so the first thing to note in Colossians, this is um, these first five verses are one of those dense paragraphs that the Apostle Paul is known for writing. In the Greek, these five verses, verses 9 through 14, are one complex sentence. And so lots of clauses and subclauses, a lot going on there. But as we go through this in detail, and we're going to unpack it, I want us to look, I want us to... um, Notice three particular pieces that come into focus. So he's praying that the Colossian Christians would continue in the pattern of the Christian life. And so as he prays, he lays out the pattern for the Christian life that he's praying that they would continue in. So he doesn't assume that they know everything. He's like, I'm praying for you to continue in this, and this is what it is that I want you to keep doing. But as we look more closely, I think he's not just laying out one pattern. I think he's actually laying out three, and they're all different, and yet at the, all, at the same time, they're all true. So I want to consider them. I want to consider how they apply to us and how they're patterns for our growth and our life in Christ. So to start, we're going to start at the end and work our way back. Start at the foundation, because as, as, as uh, we think about growth, I want us to start at the foundation in the soil and roots down the bottom, and then we'll work our way up. And so to find the first pattern that I think Paul is talking through here, we begin with the last two verses of our text, where it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so there's, there's a whole bunch going on there. There's, and I I think there's four pictures that Paul gives us even in just that one sentence. So, um, 
So the first pattern that I think is here is that the Christian life is a life in the pattern of deliverance, right? The pattern of rescue. And this is a, this is a model that, that goes back all the way through the Old Testament, and it's a pattern that I think that every other pattern we look at has to depend on. And it's also the pattern we're most likely to forget because it asserts that we're powerless. Right? And it does it in a few different ways. And so at four ways here. It does first by evoking all patterns of the Old Testament. Right, with Paul's use of deliverance or rescue language, many commentators uh, say that Paul is hearkening back to rescue of God's people from Egypt or other similar Old Testament instances of God delivering his people. Right? And so the, the commonality with all those Old Testament references is the helplessness of those whom God delivers. Right? They can't deliver themselves. So whether it's the Israelites enslaved in Egypt or the Jews in exile or the people of God facing some other superpower of the time, what the Old Testament examples have in common is that the people are unable to save themselves. They need to be rescued by another. They are helpless in and of themselves. And that's something we tend to want to deny about ourselves. If we're okay, then we want to assert that we're okay because we made ourselves okay, not because someone delivered us. But, and if we're not okay, we want to believe that we can deliver ourselves. I mean, it's like, no, I can, I can do it myself. But the pattern of the Old Testament again and again denies these, these assertions, right? We can't save ourselves. We're in need of rescue. We're in need of deliverance. And so if we're truly secure, it's only because God has already secured us and made us that way. And if we're not secure, then only God can give us the deliverance we really need. And if those, so that's, that's kind of Paul's first um, example. And if that was too subtle, he, he moves on. And he says, okay, um, you really are helpless, and here's my next example. Um, I'm going to frame it in kings and dominions. So he speaks in verse 13 of us living first under one domain and then being transferred to another kingdom, right? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But the thing to notice, again, we're not the chief actors or the chief powers in this. We're not described as one power among many, you know, a whole set of similar powers and we're just one. No, we're subjects under the power of another. We're not presented as people who can do anything, but as those subject to some greater power. We're either under the domain of darkness or under the, under the domain of Jesus, the sun. We're not movers and shakers. We're not forces to be reckoned with, as some of us would like to imagine. But we're tiny people subject to a domain or a kingdom. One domain is terrible and the other is glorious, but both emphatically agree on at least one thing. We're not in charge. But then Paul goes even further. So that was were the first two examples. He's like, okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to talk about redemption. Because, and we tend to think of redemption, I think, in, in spiritual, just spiritual terms or moral categories. But that would not have been the first context that came to mind for those first century Christians in that church. Right? In Paul's day, the language of redemption evoked the images of slavery. So the language of redemption in verse 14 would have brought to mind the picture of a price paid for a slave in order to secure his or her release from slavery. And so this is the third picture of our helplessness. Right? Paul pictured us as slaves at the mercy of a master who owns us. And in this case, the master is sin. Did you listen to all the verses from Romans 6 that Covey read at the beginning? Our only hope of freedom is for another to purchase freedom for us, for another to redeem us, 
so that we are no longer subject to sin, so that we're no longer slaves to sin. But we're not able to redeem ourselves. We're helpless in that regard. And our helplessness means we need delivered, we need rescued. Finally, these verses also evoke the theme of debt. Paul says at the end of verse 14, we need forgiveness of sins. We have a spiritual debt that we can't pay ourselves. It has to be forgiven. Once more makes us helpless, right? We need rescue. So with each of these four images in that one sentence, right? And, and so the, the beauty of that is, is Paul makes it so rich. And there's going to be certain things that jump out to certain people in, in the first century audience and to us. But in each of them, he emphasizes the helplessness and need to be rescued by one who is stronger than we are. And as Christians, we happily affirm those things. Sometimes we just affirm them on paper or in our songs or in our liturgy. And sometimes part of us pushes back. We want to qualify it in some way. We want to say, no, I, I'm, I'm more powerful than that. I can do some of it myself, right? I can fight my enemy. I can fight some of these things going on in my life myself. I'm not a slave to anyone. I don't owe anyone anything. But that's a lie. And if we hold on to that lie, we can't really hear anything else Paul has to say to us. Right? Because we're not, we haven't been fully delivered. We haven't fully given our lives to Christ where he can work in us in that way. We set up these idols that distract us and take our eyes off of Christ. So Paul, just in, this, in these foundational words, fo- forces us to come to grips with our helplessness. But in those very same words, in the same images, this is the beauty of it, he also tells us that rescue has come. It's not just that we need deliverance, but as he says in verse 13, if we have trusted in Christ, then we have been delivered, just as surely as Christ delivered Israel from the Egyptians and Jews from Babylon. And it's not just that since we're powerless, we need a good and loving king, but that in Jesus Christ, God's son, we have been given a good and loving king, and if we trust in him, we've already been transferred into his glorious kingdom. It's not just that we are slaves to sin in need of redemption, but in verse 14, as believers, we already have redemption. Christ has ransomed all who have trusted in him from their former master, from that sin. And it's not just that we have spiritual debt, but in Christ, forgiveness of that debt has been offered. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. So this is, this is the first pattern, I think, that Paul lays out here. Not only is it something foundational to what we believe, but it's a pattern of deliverance and rescue. We need to understand that so that we always go to Christ for our deliverance and our rescue. Christ has rescued and will continue to rescue those who trust in him. So everything else in our text is built on that. As hard as, you, as hard as we may want to work on the rest of it and all the other things that Paul gives us, if we don't have this, it's all going to crumble because it lacks a true foundation. It lacks a place to root itself. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They focused on the patterns of what they were supposed to do. They neglected the foundation. They neglected the fact that they actually really needed God. And so their faith came to nothing. So let us not make that same mistake. So... For Christians, our deliverance is our soil and our foundation and our root for our spiritual growth. And on that foundation is built the next pattern that I want to talk about, the second pattern in the text. And the second pattern in the text is that the Christian life is lived as a pattern of progress, 
a pattern of growth. The Christian life is a pattern of progress and growth. We see that in verses 11 and 12. We read this, Paul is praying that the Colossian Christians will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walking means moving, progress, moving forward. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He also prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Christian life, Paul says, is supposed to have progress. God doesn't just rescue us from the danger we put ourselves in and then leave us as we were. He doesn't just grab you, set you on a rock, and you just stay on the rock forever. The rescue we need is not just external, but then it's internal as well. We need to be changed. And that change, that sanctification, is a process, and we need to show progress. Paul here tells us that God not only rescues us from our external threats, but he's at work progressively eliminating the internal threats that reside in our hearts. And Paul identifies then three stages of that progressive pattern. So it starts with God strengthening us. And again, just notice in the back of your head as we go through this, God strengthening us. Right? There's In each of these things, there's nothing that we're doing. There's a lot that we're doing. God is accomplishing all the work in us. Paul writes in verse 11 that he is praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. The first step, again, begins with God. Paul doesn't pray that the Colossians would muster up some spiritual strength, but that God, as a gift, would give them strength so that by his help, they themselves would become spiritually strong. God is the one who always provides the increase. And what does that spiritual strength lead to? According to Paul, the progress looks like this. It tells us in the rest of verse 11. The might of God strengthening them spiritually would lead to all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. That's an interesting list, partly because it's so short. It might not be the kind of list we ourselves would have given to describe spiritual strength and growth. Right? We tend to think of you know, maybe some big, you know, big mighty deeds or, um, or being, becoming super spiritual in some particular way. But Paul thinks of endurance, patience, joy, and thanks. First, he mentions endurance and patience. Some commentators have suggested that endurance may apply more to circumstances that Colossian Christians may face, while patience may especially apply to the people the Colossian Christians may have to deal with. I liked that. As one writer put it, endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation, while patience is what faith, hope, and love show to an apparently impossible person. So... Whether or not that distinction is what Paul has in mind, these terms refer to a disposition of level-headedness, integrity, and peace in the face of suffering. As one commentator puts it, Paul singles out these qualities of endurance and patience as the weapons one needs to live in the world undaunted by its crises and panics. Patient and long-suffering spirit, the quiet corollary of faith, hope, and love is the product of the settled conviction that the Father of Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of the world, and that he is able to bring about his purpose in his own time and manner. Amen. With that, Paul adds joy. Spiritual growth means an increase not only in endurance and patience, but also in joy. The Christian does not become more stoic and emotionally flat as he or she grows in spiritual maturity. As they grow in strength, they're making progress. They become more joyful. People sometimes think that if they really believe God is sovereign in every situation, they need to be stoic about anything that happens in their lives. 
right? So I know God's in control, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be serious and just bear up under it. But it's the opposite. We're supposed to be full of joy and with no qualifications, right? Paul in Romans 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And joy even in difficult situations, as James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Is joy evident in your life as you grow in Christ? Finally, Paul lists that his spiritual progress and strengthening is to result in them giving thanks to God the Father. So as we walk and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we're supposed to be thankful. And of course, we talk about sometimes how we of all people should be the most thankful people. And we teach our kids to say thank you, even when they might not actually really be thankful. Do we do that too? Or are we really thankful people? Paul recognizes that thanksgiving, true thanksgiving, is a picture of the mature Christian and of spiritual growth. How thankful are you? Have you seen growth in your thankfulness? Have you grown to be more thankful in all situations? In all situations, not just as you sit down to a great meal, but even when God brings hard providences. Paul then points to the destination of this progress. So all these things, growing in endurance and patience and joy and thankfulness, where is that going? So they may share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul emphasizes the future hope that these Colossian Christians have, that we have. We share in hope with all the saints, including those in Colossae in the first century. And so in all of this, Paul points to the pattern of growth that he's laying out for these Colossian Christians. They're supposed to be part of the Christian life, built on the foundation that God has delivered us. God strengthens according to his glorious might. We increase in endurance, patience, joy, and thanks. And then we share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I mean, it just even just talking that way, it sounds like a blossoming. It sounds like growth. Now, we have to be careful here. Like I said, we can be tempted to read this pattern as if God gets us started in the Christian life, but we're the ones who complete the work, and that's not the case. We are called on to be active, as we'll consider in just a moment. Paul is almost tedious reminding us again and again that all of this progress comes from God because we need to be reminded. He's not doing it just to be redundant. He's doing it because we often forget. Because our progress not only all depends on the first pattern, on being delivered, where God rescues us from the domain of darkness. But our progress itself, our growth itself, is based on God's might, as Paul says in verse 11. And though we are to make use of God's might, even as we do, it is never we who qualify ourselves to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. But as Paul stresses again in verse 12, it is God the Father who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That truth is the key. And at the very same time, we're called on to act. We're called on to grow. We are called on to strive for spiritual progress. We are called on to seek the strength that can only come from God's power as we come first to him for help. We are called to actively seek real growth in a variety of ways, but especially in this letter, including endurance, patience, joy, thanks. We are called on to set our eyes on our future hope when we will not only receive the inheritance of the saints, but we will be people who belong among the glorified saints because God will have transformed us to gloriously bear his image as we were meant to. Is that the kind of spiritual growth you seek? 
when you face difficult circumstances, when you deal with difficult people, when you lack joy, when you're not feeling thankful, do you turn to God for strength? Do you look to him and see this as an opportunity for spiritual growth, that he's working in you? Do you remember the kind of saint in light that God is making you into? And do you seek to take one more tiny step toward that goal in the midst of those difficulties and temptations before you? So that's the second pattern Paul lays out for here for the Christian life. The Christian life is lived in a pattern of progress, not usually a straight line. It's not usually an obvious path, has its ups and downs. But overall, when we step back, it should look like a life of spiritual growth. Finally, the last pattern, verses 9 and 10. There Paul writes, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So watch this. Here Paul says, The pattern of the Christian life goes from knowledge of God to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord to bearing fruit, and then back to the knowledge of God, which is right back where it started. And so the third thing that I think we can see here is that the Christian life is a pattern of a cycle. Pattern of a cycle. And it's this cycle that shows us how we're to live out the other two patterns in our day-to-day lives. How we're to live as people transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, and how we are to live in a way that leads to that spiritual progress and growth described in verses 11 and 12. We're to live our Christian lives in this pattern of a cycle. And the cycle starts with knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what exactly does that mean? One writer puts it like this. He says, what Paul has in mind is not some particular or special direction for one's life, as we often use the phrase God's will, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and for the Colossians here. And we can see what that looks like even better when we consider the words Paul used to describe it. So Paul, as I'm sure you know, doesn't use words without a lot of meaning and doesn't use words that often occur other places in Scripture that he wants us to go back to, that he wants these first century Christians to understand from the Old Testament Scriptures and go back and look at. So Paul uses three words here, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And those words have a history together in the Old Testament that give us a picture of what Paul, I think, was trying to communicate here, what he had in mind here for these Colossians. And Paul has chosen these words that were already connected in these certain passages, and they're different in different passages, but I think when we put them together, we get a a clearer picture of what Paul was trying to communicate here. So first, we find two of these words repeatedly linked in discussions about what kind of attributes a good king needs to rule God's people. David says this to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22. Only may the Lord grant you wisdom and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. In 2 Chronicles 1, when God asked Solomon what, what Solomon would like God to grant him, he says this, And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, 
but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have ever had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. But notice that he asked for wisdom and understanding that he may go out and come in before the people. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But I'm sure some examples in Proverbs also came to mind, right? These words are common in Proverbs, many examples in Proverbs, just a couple. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2, 2 and 3, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift your voice for understanding. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So I, what I, a couple of those, I, I want you to notice that it's not just this esoteric wisdom and understanding that Paul is pointing back to by pointing back to these passages, right? I think Paul has in mind practical wisdom and understanding. Solomon prayed wisdom and understanding, so as the people, as going out and coming in, like he could judge and judge well. And that was, that was a very earthly thing. It wasn't just so he was, he was super smart. It was applied. It was applied wisdom and understanding. But I think uh, where we find all three of these words used together is in Isaiah, where God describes the sort of gifts he will give to the Messiah. There we read that he will give the Messiah the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Those are the skills the Messiah will have, we read in Isaiah 11, to bring righteousness and faithfulness and equity to the earth, taking the, those heavenly realities right, and bringing them to earth, making them earthly realities. And even before that, same three words that we see in this passage in Colossians are brought up in two passages in the book of Exodus concerning the man who is tasked with designing and overseeing the building of God's tabernacle. This is Exodus 31. 1 through 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And you say, Okay, why, why does that matter? That's interesting. But if our goal is to understand what Paul is getting at when he prays for the Colossian Christians to be filled by God with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, I think what this example um, show us is that these gifts are supposed to lead to practical results. In Exodus and Isaiah, when all three concepts come together, we get a clear picture of what these practical results, these gifts are supposed to produce. Bezalel was gifted by God to perceive the heavenly tabernacle, and then to make it an earthly reality. His skill, his gift lay not in just contemplating the heavenly tabernacle and not just in devising an earthly tabernacle, completely unrelated, but in understanding the heavenly one where he could make the heavenly one a reality on earth. And the interesting thing is the writer of Hebrews mentions this. Listen to this little bit of Hebrews chapter 8. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So the true tabernacle in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, 
For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. I, I think that is the coolest thing ever. We can see what's meant by wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in that context. In Exodus, the ability to perceive heavenly realities and make them earthly realities. So as we come back to Paul, we see that these ideas that he's saying before us is, is the same. He writes, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The kind of knowledge that Paul's praying for for these Colossian Christians, and that he says we, we have to start with, is a knowledge of God's ways revealed to us in Christ, which we are to know and understand and then live in light of. We're supposed to take those heaven realities, heavenly realities of what Christ has done for us and live them out as earthly realities so that in our lives, both individually, corporately as a church, they become earthly tabernacles, pictures of God's heavenly ways. This is how the world looks at us and sees pictures of heaven. That's what Paul is calling these Colossian Christians to be, pictures of heaven. And so we, we do this by translating the knowledge, as Paul says in verse 10, into walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we begin simply by walking as he wants us to walk, as he would have us walk, living as he calls us to live, and as is right for us to live in light of the spiritual realities of the gospel that he already, that he already discussed, like all those foundational things of the gospel that we've been rescued, we've been delivered. Live in light of that. It starts with living your life exactly where God has you, right? With your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your vocation, but living it transformed by the gospel. And as we do that, Paul says our lives will be fully pleasing to God. And you should hear that and go, how is my life ever going to be fully pleasing to God? If we know ourselves, I know myself, uh, my walk is often quite imperfect, and how imperfect it continues to be. How often we stumble and fall. So how can Paul say we can do things that are fully pleasing to God? But the point Paul's making is not how we can reach perfection, but that we're able to please God with our lives if we're in Christ. In Christ, our good deeds and our attempts at faithfulness, though so often mixed with sin, are purified and accepted before God, just as we are. The Westminster Confession, first acknowledging that our good works in this life are always defiled and imperfect, then says this. It says, Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Amen. Because God is our loving Father, and because not only we, but all we seek to do in faith is in Christ, our good works really are and really can be pleasing to God. And so as we seek to walk in light of the gospel in a way that lives out the heavenly realities revealed in Christ here on earth, our lives can, in Christ, be fully pleasing to God. And when we walk in such a way, and when God smiles on our attempts to live out what he has revealed to us in his word, it leads to bearing fruit, as we read in verse 10. 
fruit in our hearts, fruit in our lives. And finally, as we walk, as we're called to, and as we bear fruit that is pleasing to God, Paul says in verse 10, we'll increase in our knowledge of God, which is where the cycle began. And so the Christian life often looks and feels cyclical. It often feels like we're going through the same patterns again and again. We're struggling to better grasp God's ways revealed to us in scriptures. We're trying to apply them in our lives. And God in his mercy gives us some growth and gives us some success. And we see some fruit in our lives and we grow a bit in our understanding. But before we know it again, we're struggling to apply that knowledge more to our lives and working to bear more fruit, which leads us to again understand God in a deeper way and so on and so on. And it's a beautiful pattern. It's a beautiful cycle. But the thing is, it's not just a cycle. It's tied to the pattern of progress, too, the pattern of growth. If we forget that they're linked, then we can become discouraged because our Christian life can then just feel like we're just running in circles. But since Christian life is not just a cycle, it's also a life of growth, it means the Christian life is not really circular, but instead it's an upward spiral. And that's, I love this picture. And, it's a, you know, and God uses pictures of a vine often, and it's like a vine winding its way around a trellis. Right, we're growing, and we go around, and it's a cycle. We're not just running in circles. This is another great picture. We're ascending a mountain on a great spiral path. I love that picture. We're going around the mountain again and again, but gaining just a little bit of elevation each time. We never go straight up the mountain, right? God, God doesn't do that to us, thankfully. But he gives us a path, and it's our path to walk, And as we go around, we go through these cycles, we move up the mountain, and we grow, and we progress. We progress a little more each time in endurance, in patience, in joy, in thanksgiving. And we come just a little bit closer to the future that God has for us when we receive the inheritance of the saints and the light. And so first, when we see the circular pattern is linked with the growth and the progressive pattern, we see that life is not just a pointless circle, but it's that upward spiral of growth and we also need to realize that this cycle is rooted in the work and grace of god again it's not our work it is god who gives the knowledge in verse nine and he doesn't just do it at the start of the cycle he's the one who does it at the end of the cycle as well he's the one who gives us the power to bear true fruit he's the one who gives us the grace in christ for our good works to be accepted as pleasing in his sight in other words every step of this cycle is rooted in the first pattern we saw the pattern of rescue and deliverance. It's all God's work. God is continuing what he started. Rescuing us, he rescued us from our sin and unbelief, and we don't live out anything else in our own strength. We always live it out in dependence on him, just like we did for our deliverance. Third, we need to realize that this cycle probably gives us the best picture of what our spiritual lives look like on most ordinary days, right? And so it gives us a good set of goals for how to live with the challenges before us as we take one day at a time. The great spiritual realities of God's rescue of us from the domain of darkness are always true. But our day-to-day Christian lives don't always feel that traumatic, right? Where you're taking out of one domain and put in another kingdom. That's just, that's not a daily experience. The progress Paul described in verses 10 and 11 are always at work, but we can usually see that growth when we zoom out and look back over a time period. Look at the longer seasons of our life. What we see most immediately day to day is the cycle. And we should embrace that. We should embrace that. God gives us a little knowledge, work. He gives us fruit, more knowledge. 
That's our daily charge, to pray for and seek the knowledge of God with the aim of taking what we see of him in the scriptures, what he reveals to us, taking those heavenly realities and making them earthly realities in our homes, in our families, and in all of our relationships. Then trusting in God's help, we're to strive to live them out, walk in a manner that reflects those spiritual realities in a manner that will be fully pleasing to our Heavenly Father. That's what we can see on a daily basis. As God grants us success, we seek to bear fruit that blesses God, right? that blesses others, blesses each other. The fruit may take time. Fruit may be small. But as you produce it, let it increase your knowledge of God even just a little bit so the next day you can start the cycle again. The cycle is lived out in how we approach even mundane daily tasks. That's the beauty of it. God, it doesn't have to be these big things every day. It's how we engage in ordinary daily conversations, how we handle our typical daily thoughts, emotions, temptations. It's in those daily cycles that the great, the great big picture that Paul lays out for us plays out. It plays out day by day in all the little things. And so we're all in different places. We're all in different places on that spiral path on the mountain or growing closer to God. Some of you have been walking with God for a long time, and amen. And some are just starting out. But it's no different for any of us. We all walk looking to God to complete the work he started in each of us. We don't look to ourselves at any point. So let us embrace God's calling for each of us living to please him, that he would prepare us for our inheritance, for he has delivered us into the kingdom of his son. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have delivered us into your glorious kingdom. Fill us with the knowledge of your will. Strengthen us. Give us endurance and patience and joy with all thankfulness. We do have so much to be thankful for. Lord, as we grow in knowledge, help us to live out the reality of the gospel to those around us. Make us lights in the midst of this present darkness as we look to walk faithfully each day that we may reflect your glory to all we come in contact with. Sanctify us through the trials that we encounter and preserve us through it all. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.